Well, good morning. morning. Before I begin, uh, join with me as we seek the Lord today with His help for His Word. Heavenly Father, thank You so much for this time. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for giving it to us. Thank You for giving it to us in a way that we can understand, in a way that we can mine and dig into, and to learn more and more about You and Thank you that it is truly inexhaustible and that we have thousands and thousands and thousands of years to come where we get to share with you and fellowship with you and learn all that there is to know about our God. Help me this morning to speak your word and help us all to hear it, to understand it, and may it soak into our hearts day and day. Amen. Amen. Well, last week, Mike... Uh, was began back in uh, our series on Mark, and that was in Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. And he spoke about the uh, satisfaction that Christ gives us in the wilderness. And uh, it's something that Mike and I have talked about a lot about recently, how he said this quote, how sermon writing or preparing a sermon, sermon is oftentimes deciding what to leave out, what not to say. Uh, because when you start really digging into the Greek and, and pulling lots of commentaries, you realize that uh, dozens or hundreds of men have spent their whole lifetimes uh, expositing one chapter or one section. So to think that I'm going to stand up here in 35 minutes, explain all that there is to explain about uh, a portion of Mark chapter 8 um, is a little foolish. But uh, needless to say, today we are in Mark chapter 8, we will be examining verses 11 through 21. So I will read those now. This is Jesus being confronted with the Pharisees, by the Pharisees. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and got into the boat again and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, the disciples, and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand? How many baskets full of broken pieces did I take up? And they said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up afterwards? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Well, I must admit that the first time I was given this passage and I read it, I was like, I'm, I don't understand. I don't know what, I don't know what Jesus is talking about. Uh, this passage is in Matthew also, and Matthew does what Mark doesn't do, which is basically give you what Jesus is talking about. So when you read it in Mark, it's very natural to respond like the disciples and be like, I don't 
understand what you're talking about, Jesus. And unfortunately, this is a very common confusion for us in our our day and age. And I want to say this just as a a little kind of primer for what I'm going to talk about today. And that we're taught in our culture, in our time, that it's acceptable to simply just read the very short passages of Scripture. You've probably heard uh, ads on the radio, or you'll see them on Facebook sometimes, and they'll It'll be a thing where you can sign up for like a daily text message. That it'll, it'll be an encouraging verse for you or something like that. Now, I think those have you know, the right intention in mind. But unfortunately, we're being taught as a church that we can get by with essentially a little crumb on the ground every day. And then we forget that, wait a minute, this book, these books, the, the Gospels and the Epistles and the New Testament didn't have chapters didn't have verses. Back then, hearing someone read something from a text was a big deal because books were rare. They were very expensive. So this is the context that we lose. And so given that, what this leads to then is, uh, unfortunately, we begin to do what the world does, what our 21st century American culture does, is think relativistically. Now, before you think, oh no, here, here, here Jared goes talking about philosophy again. Uh, I can't help it at this point. It's just part of me. I spent too much money um, to not talk about it. But it also has uh, a lot to do with what we're going to look at. So relativistic thinking is that I can read Scripture and it means whatever I think it means. And as we'll look at today... That's exactly what Jesus is warning his disciples against, and that's what, the, that's what the Pharisees, in essence, were doing. They were rejecting the Word of God, and they were simply saying, no, I'm going to say what Scripture means. And my interpretation of the Old Testament is right, and no one else's is, is right. And unfortunately, that's what we've fallen into. So we either just... Say, well, I don't get it, so I'm not going to skip over that passage. Or we decide that, well, how does it apply to me directly right now in my particular circumstance? And unfortunately, both of those responses are insufficient. So this, of course, brings us to the next issue, which is context. In order to avoid all these things, we need to look at the context of each passage. I'm certainly not saying that we need to just read three chapters at a time every Sunday. We certainly do not have the time for that. But the importance of context cannot be overstated. There's an old joke in uh, theology that there are three rules of uh, proper uh, interpretation, proper biblical interpretation. The first rule is context. The second rule is context. And the third rule is, again, context. You can get a long ways if you just look at and read the rest of the portion of Scripture. So just as a way of refresher and everything, uh, leading into chapter 8, verses 11 through 21, very quickly, let's examine what Mark is doing in his, in his narrative up until this point. So, obviously, it's a gospel we don't need to get into exactly what exactly a gospel is. 
But Mark's narrative is, our, our scholars and, and um, theologians over the years have divided it into 16 chapters. I think it was in like um, the 1300s that they started to give chapters and th- certain things like that. So there's 16 chapters, and in his narrative, there is a distinct uh, ending and then beginning right in the middle of his narrative. And so we've placed that in chapter 8. So you have chapters 1 through 8 being the first half, and chapters 9 through 16 being the second half. The interesting thing that Mark does in his gospel is he uses a lot of repeating themes, repetitive themes. This is something that Hebrews did uh, as far as uh, Jewish scholars back then. So Mark is a Hebrew. Most of the disciples, right, they're Jews. This is something that is uh, bred into them, this way of thinking. That's very interesting how he bookends both of these halves. So chapter 1 begins with the baptism of Jesus, and there we have the confession of the Father. So the Father confesses Jesus to be his Son. Mark chapter 8 concludes with Peter's confession. So Peter confesses that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. He is, in fact, the Christ. Well, we could guess what, it, what book ends the second half. This, essentially the same thing. Chapter 9 begins with the transfiguration. There you have the Father confessing the Son once again before the disciples. And then chapter 15, right at the end of chapter 15, you have Mark bookending his narrative as well with the confession of the Roman centurion. So there's the model. There's a 10,000-foot view of what Mark is doing in his narrative. So where we find ourselves today is at the end of the first half. So all that Mark has been uh, setting up in chapters 6, 7, and 8 is driving towards Peter's confession of who he is. Peter's confession that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ. Now, going on with these repetitive themes in Scripture, the events that take place in Mark chapter 8 are mirrored with the events that take place in chapters 6 and 7. And since it's been a while since Mark, uh, since Mike preached on those chapters, uh, it's worth looking at how they share similarities. So in both chapters 6 and 7, Jesus feeds the crowd. So that's the first feeding of the multitude. He then crosses the water. When he arrives on the other side, he has a conflict with the Pharisees. And then he has a conversation about the, bre- <clears throat> about the bread with his disciples. He then performs a healing. And then there is a, uh, that's followed by a confession of faith. Now, obviously, the details are different. A lot of scholars have said, okay, no, Mark is just using the same story twice. There's no reason to believe that. Too many of the details are different. And Mark is definitely highlighting that these are two different, uh, distinct examples of Jesus feeding a multitude. And in his narrative, they serve a very distinct purpose. And that's what we'll be looking at. So in Mark chapter 8, the same things happen. Jesus feeds the crowd, crosses the water, has a conflict with the Pharisees, conversation about bread, heals a man who is blind, and then we have Peter's confession. So let's examine a few of the key elements that are distinct in this passage opposed to chapters 6 and 7. 
So I'll read again verses 11 through 13. It says, The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And then he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and got on the boat again and went to the other side. Now what's interesting here is when I was actually doing my initial studying, I kind of did a rough Greek translation on my own, which is very rough. Uh, I wouldn't rely on it very much. But uh, one of the things I found is that in Jesus' response here, when he says, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Another way you could translate that is like this. You could say, Jesus responded to them, why does this generation seek a sign? I will tell you if a sign will be given to this generation. And then Mark, what does Mark say he does? He just leaves. So, which is essentially the same answer. I'll, t- I'll tell you if, there, if you're going to receive a sign, and then he just turns around and goes. So the answer is no. But that's the idea of what Mark is driving at here, is Jesus is telling them, uh, no sign will be given to you, which is kind of crazy to think because at this point, Jesus is fairly well known. And he's well known for a very good reason, and that is he's performing miracles. He's performing signs. So the fact that they would come to him and ask for a sign is a little confusing. However, their request for a sign is not completely unwarranted. There is precedent in the Old Testament for uh, the people of God, for Israel, or the leaders of Israel, to request a sign or a miracle from God. And probably the most... uh, famous example of this is the story of Gideon and the fleece. So if we remember that story, Gideon puts the fleece out. He's trying to make a decision. Puts the fleece out and asks God, make the fleece wet and the the ground around it dry. And he wakes up in the morning and he finds that's the case. And instead of saying, amen, all right, I got my answer, what does he do? He says, well, I need to reverse that and do it again. Then I'll really know. Yes. Uh, that doesn't sound familiar at all. Uh, so there he does it. He, the ground is then wet and the fleece is dry. So the Pharisees aren't completely out of line here asking for a sign. However, the difference is, is that in the Old Testament, whenever the people of God would request a sign from God, it was done with a sense of genuine inquiry. They had, a, they had a problem, they had a question, and they were genuinely looking for an answer, for the direction. Which direction do we go? Which, which decision do we make? And we know from the rest of Mark that is not the case with the Pharisees. On the contrary, any further signs for the Pharisees would simply harden their hearts even more. And we learn this earlier in Mark, in Mark chapter 3, verse 22. It says, uh, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, Jesus is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. The, the, The Pharisees at this point were believing and were convinced, utterly convinced, that Jesus wasn't the Messiah and that these miracles he was performing, the signs that were following him, were not by the power of God, but were by the power of Satan. So in other words, he was in league with Satan. That's the decision. That's the conclusion that they had come to. We might ask, well, wait a minute. If 
haven't these guys been looking for the Messiah for several hundred years? This is there, there are myriads of prophecies in the Old Testament regarding the Messiah. You would think that there would be some sense of maybe not the whole majority is adamantly opposed to Jesus. And yet, that's the picture that we're given. The whole collective of the Jewish leadership is just uh, absolutely against what uh, Jesus is saying. And the reason is very clear. Back in Mark chapter 7, Jesus says this in response to the Pharisees demanding that the disciples wash their hands and follow the traditions of the law. Jesus said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the traditions of men. So there it is. The very reason that the Pharisees at this point hate Jesus is because he has called them what they are. They are hypocrites. They have rejected God's word in favor for their own traditions and their own expectations for the Messiah. This leads us directly into verse 14. So after um, he gets into the boat, head to the other side, he's with the disciples in the boat, and he says this, uh, Mark records this, Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they only had one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. So here Mark introduces the metaphor of leaven. And we will certainly look at how he is using this metaphor. But in order to do that, we need to look at what exactly leaven is representing. How is it represented? Is it a positive or negative use? And this is, can be confusing sometimes because leaven pops up, up throughout Scripture. It pops up in Matthew, in Paul uses it in Corinthians, and in both of those cases, in Matthew 13 and 1 Corinthians 5, leaven is used in a positive sense. Both of those authors are talking about the kingdom of heaven acting as leaven. That is, it's growing, it's expanding in the world, and you can't necessarily see it. You can see the effects of it after a while. Dough has risen, the world has changed. But you don't necessarily see it working in the moment. That's the positive use. However, here we know that Mark is obviously using it as a negative sense because he gives them a warning. Well, you don't usually warn your audience of something good. Right? So because it's given in a warning and also because he qualifies it as having its source in the Pharisees and in Herod, we know now, okay, this is, a, this is the negative use of leaven. And traditionally... The negative use is seen as representing corruption. So leaven is corruption. We might say mental or moral corruption, or corrupt teachings and corrupt behavior. However, corruption is still kind of uh, broad. It's a very broad term. How, what kind of corruption? Well, mental and moral corruption. Well, how does that work? Uh, you know, physical corruption. Are they stealing money? Are they are they uh, cheating on their wives? Are they what exactly is this type of corruption that's going on? 
And this is one of the few times that I found that um, in the in the Greek, most of the Greek translators define the word leaven with a very, very helpful term. Sometimes you'll be reading something and you'll be like, all right, I need to define this word. And then you go to the dictionary and all of a sudden you're just finding that it's defining that word with other words that are equally confusing. Right? Oh, great. Now they're, they're just going in circles. I don't actually know what this means. Can someone give me an example? This is not one of those times. The term they use to define leaven is inveterate. So they define the leaven as being inveterate mental and moral corruption. Now, if you know what the term inveterate means and points to you, because I did not know what it mean, what it meant, uh, certainly at the first uh, time I read it. But this is how it is defined. The term inveterate means having a particular habit, activity, or interest that is long established and unlikely to change. So if we apply that to the concept of corruption, that means the Pharisees are corrupt mentally, morally, they are corrupt in their teachings and their behavior, and this is something that they have been doing for quite a long time. This isn't new. They've been doing it so long, they've created new traditions, new corrupt traditions. Therefore, Jesus is warning his disciples that the inveterate traditions and beliefs of the Pharisees are creeping in and corrupting their ability to see and understand who he actually is. And unfortunately, at this point, the disciples are already thinking like the Pharisees. This is why they do not understand. Just as the Pharisees do not understand, the disciples do not understand. So let us continue to read uh, verses 16 through 21. Mark goes on and says, And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? And having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand? And how many baskets full of pieces did I take up? And they said, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? So the reason they do not understand is because they are thinking like Pharisees. So what is Pharisaical thinking? Well, we have to give the disciples a little bit of grace here because they have about 600 years of Jewish thought that is surrounded by the expectation that the Messiah is going to come and is going to end their exile. Remember, the the Jews were exiled approximately, I think it was like 596 B.C., right? Under the Babylonians. They lost their kingdom and they became an exiled people. They were a lost people. So for 600 years, you have them being born, raised, taught, and then dying within this tradition, looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. So it's very easy to understand why they would think that the Messiah is going to come and he's going to destroy the Babylonians. Or he's going to come and destroy the Romans and he's going to reestablish the Davidic kingdom. He's going to reestablish Jerusalem. He's going to 
you know, stand there on the, on the Mount of Olives and all the world will bow before Israel. That is what the disciples and the Pharisees, all the Jewish leaders at that point, were teaching the Jews. That was the main expectation. And if you read history, if you read any of the uh, Roman uh, historians or anything like that, you get it that the, the Hebrew and Roman relationship at that time was very tense. They were constantly little rebellions here and there. Uh, I mean, just watch the movie uh, Judah Ben-Hur uh, ben with um, Charlton Heston. Very good movie. And it, they do it very well showing the tension that was there. Well, that tension had been brewing, like I said, for about 600 years. So here we have the disciples thinking just like the Pharisees and expecting the very same things. They were expecting uh, not only the Messiah to destroy the Romans, but then in turn they were expecting to be made his co-rulers, his judges, his governors, secretaries of state, his royal priests. Certainly Judas was expecting to become the royal treasurer. And in the very next chapter, Mark gives us the proof that they were thinking this way. Actually, in the very, very same chapter. So there are three examples that Mark gives of the disciples thinking just like the Pharisees. So in Mark chapter 8, verse 33, there's the instance of Jesus rebuking Peter. And actually, Peter re rebukes Jesus. Because Jesus tells them how he's going to be crucified and put to death. And what does Peter do? Basically says... No, that, that can't be. You can't go and do that. And why? Well, the reason that he's rebuking Jesus for saying that is because how are we going to conquer the Romans if you're dead? How are we going to defeat our enemies if you are no longer with us? The second example is from Mark chapter 9. And this is just a sort of a little subtle note that Mark puts in. He says that as they were traveling to the next area, the disciples were arguing amongst themselves who was the greatest or who would be the greatest. And then Jesus confronts them and says, hey, what were you guys arguing about on the way? And they're so ashamed, they don't answer him. But Jesus, obviously, knowing their thoughts, he says to them, look, if you want to be great, you have to become as a little child. Well, what were they arguing about? They were arguing about who's going to be his right-hand man? Who's going to be the one that enforces, his lieutenant, who enforces all of his commands? Who are going to be the ones that go in and, and become the governors of various areas that Rome once had control over, but now we control? This was the disciples' expectations. And they were probably saying, well, Peter, Peter's probably got first position, so this is a race for second. And then the third instance is in Mark chapter 10. And this is a this is really amazing that James and John, the son of Zebedee, come to Christ, come to Jesus, and, and ask him, can you do whatever we want? Do whatever we ask of you. And Jesus is like, okay, what do you, what do you want? And they say to him, may we sit at your right and left hand when you come into your glory, when you come into your kingdom. In other words, when you hold the scepter and you stomp your foot on the ground and you are king over all, we want to rule right by your side. Now, the right and left hand of a ruler are the highest positions of honor and authority other than the ruler himself. I don't think James and John have in mind that they will rule like this in heaven. 
No, they're talking about now on earth, we want to be your co-rulers. And it's very interesting that before each of these three examples, Mark gives the very same statement that Jesus told them how he was going to be crucified and put to death and then resurrected. So before each of those examples of the disciples thinking like the Pharisees, Jesus is telling them the truth. He's telling them, he's speaking the word of God to them, and it's just going right over their head because they are thinking like the Pharisees. And this is particularly what Mark is just driving home. Because if you think about who, who is his audience, Mark's audience is Jewish Christians. These are people who have the same presuppositions, they have the same tradition and, and foundations as the disciples. They were prone to think just the same way. Well, he couldn't have been the Messiah because the Romans are still there. He couldn't have been the Messiah. He, where, is the Davidic, where is the Davidic kingdom? Where is the throne of David? So this is, the, this is the message that Mark is telling his audience, is that Jesus has not come to fulfill the cultural expectations of the Pharisees. Jesus has not come to fulfill their expectations of how the new covenant will look. So given that, we'll move on to, or, or go back to, the metaphor of leaven. How is Mark using this metaphor? Well, I think most of us are familiar, maybe some of the kids don't know what leaven is, but leaven or yeast makes dough rise. So if you ever wonder, well, how is bread so fluffy and it's got all those little bubbles in it and stuff? Looks like Swiss cheese. How, how do they get those in there? Well, the, the answer is that the leaven causes a fermentation process in the bread, which causes it to rise. Now, the leaven, you add it to the dough, and then as you knead it, as you work the dough, the leaven spreads throughout. So you don't have half a loaf that's leavened and the other half is just this dense biscuit kind of material. So that's the metaphor, is that their inveterate corrupt thinking, their inveterate corrupt uh, morality is creeping in to the disciples. It is creeping into the family of God. And as it spreads, if they are not careful, it will change them into something that does not resemble a follower of the Messiah. So this is very important. What does leaven do? Well, it changes not only the appearance of the dough, but it changes its taste and its texture. We might say it changes it completely. The thing that it was before is different after the leaven has taken has taken hold. After the leaven has infected it or worked throughout it, it no longer resembles what it once was. So this is the message. The problem, obviously, is that the disciples are already thinking like the Pharisees. So what to do? What are they to do if this leaven has already began to creep in? And as Jesus says, a little bit of leaven will leaven the whole lump. And if you've ever baked, you know that. Just a little bit if you don't want it there, a little bit will change what you're trying to make. Well, I have another baking analogy that I'd like to use. Uh, this is a 
kind of a famous family story, and my mom could probably tell this story better. But uh, so my grandma Dora, who is my mom's mom, uh, she made a, a batch of cookies one time, and they—I think they were her monster cookies, or maybe they were just chocolate chip cookies or something like that. But her monster cookies were chocolate chip oatmeal cookies, and then she'd put, uh, for some reason, put peanut M and M's in there too. So just—I mean—they were basically survival food. So, so she made this batch of cookies, and somehow she accidentally mixed up salt and sugar. So you think about reversing those two. Instead of putting cups of sugar, she put cups of salt and a couple tablespoons of sugar. Well, rather than doing what any normal person would do, which is just toss that in the trash and start over, <laughs> she, she decided that she was going to try to make enough dough extra to offset that error. <laughs> so so she set out to make, well, the problem is that you start doing the ratio of like, okay, how much salt really is there compared to the sugar? And it's probably a hundred times. <laughs> well, if she made, you know, three dozen batches of cookies, I don't think she wanted to make 300 dozen batches of cookies. <laughs> She'd have been doing it for a while. But she, she endeavored to do this. She started making more dough and she started putting them in over and she just couldn't get it right. Till finally she did what you were supposed to do when that happens, which is throw them in the trash. There's no, and you can't even really feed them to the animals. You certainly can't use them for compost. That, that much salt will ruin your compost pile. And feeding animals pure salt biscuits like that is not a good idea either. So you have to just throw it out. You have to just discard it. And this is actually how Mark is using this metaphor of leaven. Is that once the loaf or the, the body of Christ has been influenced like this. It has to be cut out. And this is also what Christ came to do. He came not to just save the Jews in exactly where they were. How are we now a part of the new covenant? How are we now a part of the body of Christ? Well, we were grafted in, as it says. The branch of Israel was cut off so that we could be grafted in. Or we could say the loaf of Israel was cast out and Jesus brought us in as a new loaf. So we have to replace the pharisaical way of thinking with the leaven of the word of God, the leaven of Christ. And Jesus came to preach the word, and that is food that is free from the manipulation and influence of the Pharisees. So the old dough of Israel has been thrown out and it has been replaced with a new batch the new Israel, one that will rest securely and purely on the word of God. And this is exactly what Paul says to the church in Corinth. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 and 8, Paul says this, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. So you, so you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Mark is clearly explaining here, and this is something that Paul would have had access to the Gospel of Mark. 
if we look at the chronology of how these books were written and when they were written. So this is a, a really cool example of where you have Paul referencing something that is included in the Gospels. So how does this apply to us? How do we avoid thinking like Pharisees? Well, obviously we are not in the first century uh, Palestine area. We do not have the same cultural expectations, the same traditions and beliefs as the first century Pharisees and the first century Jews. However, if Jesus came to uh, reject their traditions and their beliefs, what do you think he would have to say with the 21st century American traditions that we hold to? So we certainly have inveterate traditions and beliefs ourselves. A very common one in is, is that we're, we are, uh, uh, we deserve life. We deserve uh, happiness. We deserve the pursuit of happiness, right? That's right there in the uh, sort of the, the heart of American culture. That God, a good God would never allow bad things to happen to us. How could he be good if bad things happen? These are all traditions of ours that are inveterate. They are things that have crept in and they have changed the way we think about Scripture. And the list could go on and on. And I will allow you to contemplate those things in your own life. We are prone to listen to the leaven of this world. So we, just like the disciples, are caught between two worlds, between being two lumps of dough. We are constantly being attacked by the leaven of the world and therefore being leavened. At the same time, we are unleavening ourselves. Christ and the Holy Spirit are working out the leaven of the world and working in the Word of God. This is what we call sanctification. And this is a process that is only possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. It is only through the Word of God and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that we are given new eyes and new ears. Isn't it interesting that Jesus, in chapter 6 and 7, he heals a deaf man. After this passage that I have read, Jesus heals a blind man. Mark is telling his audience, he's telling, Jesus is telling his disciples, that you are blind and deaf, and that without the Word of God, without the presence of the Father, without the presence of the Spirit of God, you cannot hope to understand. And it is only when the Spirit of God has come into you and given you new eyes and new ears can you possibly hear the truth. And this is a theme that pervades Scripture. Uh, if, you, if any of you remember to one of my um, discipleship classes, I talked a lot about how, uh, in regard to apologetics, how man is incapable on his own of turning to God. Scripture teaches us that no one comes to the Father unless the Father draws him. Elsewhere we learn that man is without excuse the existence of his Creator, but in sin, in unrighteousness, he suppresses that truth. These are all examples of how we go about suppressing 
the truth of God in our natural state. We cannot hope to unleaven ourselves. We cannot hope to make ourselves new. But thankfully, we have a God who makes us new. And this is what has happened. Christ's sacrifice on the cross, His sanctification, His atonement, has made us a new lump. It has made us a new batch of dough, one that then can be worked and kneaded with the Word of God, and that also can be worked and kneaded to be rid of the influences of the world. And this is a metaphor that we live each week and throughout the week. And this is the metaphor that Jesus gives his disciples, and this is the metaphor that Mark gives his audience. We are constantly being attacked, but through the power of Christ and through the power of his word, we can overcome. We can be made new and be uh, freed from our inveterate ways of thinking. Therefore, when we study scripture, we are working out the leaven and being sanctified into a new creation. When we come here each week and sing and fellowship with one another, we are unleavening ourselves. And throughout the week, as we pray and confess, we are kneading out the old leaven and making room for the word of Christ to fill our hearts and minds. And finally, we come here each week and we are presented with the table and the loaf of bread, which is the very body of Christ, as a reminder that he alone satisfies to the fullest and he alone gives life everlasting. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for your word. Please help us and sanctify us each day. Cause us to grow and to be made into your image. Be gentle to us and be merciful to us as you show us our sins. For surely if you showed all the ways that we are sinful, it would break our hearts and break our spirits. But please continue to sanctify us. Grow us together into your image so that one day all the world would sing your praise and worship you together. Amen.